All right, welcome to the Michael Slate Show. I'm your host, Michael Slate. Yeah, and I'm getting my ears blown out, okay? Because I'm having fun. <laughs> Here you go. All right. This is the Michael Slate Show, as I said, and I'm, the, I'm Michael Slate, and we've got a packed show today. So let's get started, all right? It's really important to get started, and uh, I don't want to lose any time today. I don't want to lose any time at all today, all right? At the back end of the show, at the back end of the show, we'll be bringing you some of the voices from March 8th, International Women's Day, when hundreds of uh, people marched in cities across the country for Rise Up for Abortion Rights, okay? And uh, we'll be bringing more voices from those actions in the weeks ahead. But it's going to be really important for people to actually listen to this and to and, and think about it and wrestle with it and, and go out and, and spread the word about this, all right? And the actions March 8th were just the beginning. There will be mass meetings uh, nationwide the weekend of March 19th to the 20th. April 7th to the 8th will be a Wear Green Day in preparation for Saturday, April 9th, a nationwide protest for Saturday, April 9th, nationwide protest. So stay tuned to Rise Up number four, all right? Abortionrights.org or follow them on social media. Before that, we'll hear a recent talk on the uh, war in Ukraine by Raymond Lada, a uh, political economist who writes for Revcom.us. And opening the show up, I'm really pleased to be going into this one. Okay, opening this show up, um, I'll be talking with actors Will Dixon and Liana Arauz uh, from the play Detained, all right? And it's a play I saw a little while ago, and it just blew me away. I really, 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 really fell over on it, all right? I thought it was just a very powerful one. Okay, Will, Liana, welcome to the show. Thanks, Hi. Michael. Nice to be here. Yeah, yeah. Hi. <laughs> Good to see you. know, I've been sitting there. I've been, I've been reading your stuff for, oh, I don't know, about a year now. <laughs> okay, no, no. Sitting down and ready, getting ready to actually talk with you about it. And I thought it was really important the way that you have been, the way that you have been taking things to, to people, the way that you've been explaining things to people and kind of a new sort of, basically an, a fearless attitude towards this. So I want I think it's important that we do this, all right? So um, could one of you tell us about what the play is that we're talking about? How was it created and what's the story? Liana, you want to hit him? Sure. <laughs> Don't um, hit me. Come on. <laughs> so the, play, the play is called Detained, and it's written by Frank Luz Benson. She's a playwright. Her parents are from Haiti. And this play was commissioned by an immigration lawyer for the ACLU. And it's based on real stories, real interviews of people that have been detained or their family members, or their lawyers, but they also have um, interviewed, they're, they're also characters that are from, that work on Homeland Security, and they're ICE agents. So it's a play that is trying to humanize a very, very messy system that is immigration from different sides of the equation. And, um, and there's like a, it was difficult to select which stories to tell, so there's like about a handful, I don't know how many, maybe eight different stories of different families, different individuals that have gone through detention and the ramifications of that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's kind of, it's very heavy because when I first started to, to, to read about this and, to, you know, I didn't have any real concept of, 
you know, basically what you were just saying in terms of, you know, you, you get, you sort of get tied up in a, the, the way things are normally put where it doesn't, 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 do, doesn't do anything would equal what you, got, what, you, what you folks have been actually bringing forward. And I think this is, it's extremely important. It's sort of like, you know, this whole question of detained and what is actually happening with people. And I'd like to, you know, and I think that what you said was, was very good, but I, wanna, I really want to pursue some of this other stuff too. And I don't know, I'm not sure who wants to take this one <laughs> because I think it's, it's actually really, it's, it's important to dig into this. And, and as you said, it was created and, and what's the story. You play several characters um, in this thing, and 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 it really it, it was a remarkable it was a remarkable effort. And I wanted to hear you talk about that. The you know the several characters that you played. Who are they? What's important about that? I really really appreciate that, Michael. Yeah, man. Um, I, my my three characters are are Warren, who's a, uh, a U.S. veteran. Um, Ravi, who is actually. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, it's an interpretation, but Ravi um, Ragbeer is actually an activist, uh, pretty well-known activist in, in New York. Even while he was, he was fighting his deportation, he was doing, uh, you know, uh, doing work for the detained. Um, and then the final character, uh, probably the saddest in the annual, his sister was actually here. The, the, the real-life Emmanuel's sister was here for opening night, which was surreal, but it was, it was amazing and, and very inspirational. Uh, Emmanuel is, is still stuck in, in Haiti. Um, he was allowed to represent himself. He's, he's uh, schizophrenic, has some very, very serious uh, 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 mental problems, and was allowed to represent himself and, and literally got himself deported. And uh, he's still in Haiti. The family's still trying to get him back. And, and last year, the year before, he um, took a fall and is now paralyzed. So it's, it's making the mountain even harder to climb. And I think what you, what you mentioned before about, you know, we don't know. We, we're, we, we consider ourselves conscious, liberal um, people, you know, who try to stay up on things. But this is another level of, of this tortured immigration system that, that is happening now um, is is as fraught as it, I mean. This actually, as Leon has said many times, this is the this is the watered down version. It's much much worse. Boy, it's incredible when you and you know this this point about I mean how when you went into this it must have been um, you know even to just continue talking about what actually is happening to people it's 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 really necessary for people to think about. Exactly that term. What are what's happening to people in, in in light of all this? You know, this is a this is a very. I mean, I, when I read it, when I dug into this, when I dug into what you were doing, it really it really put me on fire. And and Liana, what about what about your characters? I mean, they they're, they were very, very 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 needed in the in the picture themselves. Thank you. Um, yeah, I I I take it with a lot of responsibility playing them. And if anything, I they teach me to, to be brave because these are real women. This is not like something from uh, translucent imagination. These are people that actually exist and went through this. So um, I played three characters, but I, I basically we concentrate on two. One, her name is Melida. She's uh, a roofer that came from Guatemala when she was a teenager. And 
put herself through school, carpentry, became a, a, a high-rise building roofer, raised a family on her own, took care of her um, mother that was having Alzheimer's. And then after 30 years, she was in the union, she paid taxes. After 30 years, one little thing that happened in her teenage year that it was not even her fault, sent her to detention. And uh, they fought the deportation, um, her deportation case, and she and she won. But the the prize for that was months of her kids not having their their mother around. Um, she had a grandkid born while she was in detention. And then I played this um, Colombian refugee that she came and asked for asylum. And during the high of the pandemic in the detention center, she she organized a strike. She she sent videos. It became a movement, sent it to CNN, organized a hunger strike just so they could get basic, basic PPE and protection inside the detention centers because not nothing was happening. Tons of people were put together. And basically they're once they're in detention. Their lives don't matter. It's not like, like when you go into jail, you know what you did, and you know what your sentence is. When you get taken to detention, sometimes you have no idea why, and you also have no idea how long it's going to be. It could be a week, and you can be sent to your back to the country where you came from, or you can be years. This woman was in detention for over two years and a half of her life. So while we all were suffering, being in the pandemic, oh, my God, my life is so disrupted for two years. She was going through it in detention, and, and she, got sent to, um, she got sent to isolation for, for protesting and, and group. Um, I mean, th- those are things that we don't talk about in the play, but, but the actual treatment of them, it's, um, yeah, it's something a bit more cruel what goes on in there. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one one of the other cruelties, Michael, um, that that we uh, outline in the play is that not only are they sent to detention for uh, you know a, an undisclosed amount of time, one of my characters was in there for three three years and two months, mm-hmm. um, and he mentions his son. Three years and two months of his son's life he missed because he was sitting in the worst possible conditions. Um, but the other thing is, is they send these characters. They send the detained to places as far away from their home state or where they, mm-hmm. you know, where they're living as possible. There's cruelty sort of piled on top of cruelty, just unnecessary, unnecessary cruelty um, to be sent. One of my characters, Robbie, who lives in New York was sent to Mississippi. He was sent to Alabama as far away from your family as you can, as they can possibly put you. Uh, as he says, you can't find a lawyer. You can't make phone calls. You have no money. Uh, you have no connections. Um, all designed. The, the cruelty is the point of all of this. Mm-hmm. Now, when you say that the cruelty is the point, I mean, it's, it, it's very heavy because I think a lot of people, when they look at the way things are going, everything always gets, gets you know, basically put out there as, well, you know, these people did something. You know, they didn't have a right to be here. You know, they haven't paid their dues or, they're, you know, or they'll, bring, you know, they'll bring bugs over, you know, whatever. All these kinds of insane things. But they're insane things, but they're also things that have been really, they're, 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 they're 
basically cut into a fabric that, that, that will allow people to sit back and say, well, I don't, have to, I don't have to worry about that. I don't want to worry about these people. Let's just, like, push them away. And I thought that actually what, what, what you guys have been saying um, in this has been really important. You know, when people look at this, the, the, the question of, you know, actually who is doing what to who and how does it get done is a really, really important thing. And, and as you said, these, these people endure horrific treatments, but there's also resistance and I'd like to talk about that because that's really that's really important that people know that there's yes there's a lot of you know horrible stuff going on but then there's the resistance that the people are mounting. Yeah, I, I think what happens is is the parents they're trying to make it like if you come here, you know, without your papers, we're gonna make it so difficult to the parents too. But some of the people that are being detained currently, and I just need to make this point. And I think it's one of the points of the play. It's, it's people that have been living here for decades. I mean, in the case of Will Characters, Warren, he fought for eight years in the military. So it's kind of ridiculous that they're totally okay with taking the cheap labor, taking the taxes, Taking, you know, the overqualified sometimes cheap labor. Because some, some people have degrees in their countries and then they come here and the only job that they can do is the jobs that other people wouldn't do. You know, cleaning, construction, taking care. A lot of the people that work in um, asylums, you know, like older, older people's homes. So they're totally okay with that, taking their, their service to go and fight for the country. They don't have any problems with their not having all the paperwork for that. But then afterwards, for no reason at all, they just shut them down and want to send them away as a deterrence from other people. But what they don't understand is that, let me tell you, if people could come here legally, that's how they would do it. They don't come here legally out of their choice. Sometimes it's, it's the best that they can do, and sometimes they do it because they really... But as it's, it's, I mean, this is like, if you're talking 20 years, 30 years afterwards, then you're going to send them away? And then, so that is the thing. Like, once they're there, they're like, at least for uh, one of the images that I have with Melida, the, the roofer, is that she's like a tree that is planted. And she fought her de deportation case. She, they, they had a lot of legal bills, but she was not deported because she was like, no, my family is here. I've been contributing to this country for so long. I have nothing to go back. This is where I belong. Um, and, and that, and, and then the, the character that this became a movement, different detention centers to start organizing strikes. The woman will send little messages to the men like, Hey, we're going to strike. We're going to do a hunger strike. It's the only thing that is the only power that we have for us to start be treated with a little bit of basic needs. Mm -hmm. So yeah, hopefully, you know, it brings awareness, and, and there's people in the system, too. That's what the play brings, that there's people in Homeland Security. They're judges. They're, they're people even in ICE that they are like, we just want to do what is right. But some of this stuff, it starts to get blurry just because it's lawful. Does it feel, does it mean that it's fair and humane? It's kind of questions that, are, that the play, I think, brings up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, this play... Just the fact that we're talking about it, able to talk about it right now, is a form of resistance. 
the show itself is a, is a form of resistance. Talkbacks have been very, very productive. We also have, during the talkback, you also get some, um, some places to, to be able to go, some resources to be able to look up to, if you want to get involved. I want to make it one. I want to let people remind people that the Fountain Theater played a major role in getting this play into this onto the stage, didn't it? I mean, and, and it's it's kind of like Absolutely. when you when you think about that, this actually this needs to be gotten out, just in a in the biggest way possible. When I saw it, I actually there was a scene I guess in there that that you know where there were a lot of people who were being rounded up and they were being shoved against the wall and they were being basically being told that they were going to be sent out and they're going to be, you know, this is the end of you. That's it. And I, I couldn't help but under help but feel one, the anger about what was going on, but two, the bravery of people to stand up against this. And that's one of the things that I thought that what found, what the fountain theater was bringing to this, basically it got it to the stage, but it also helped people to maybe be able to stand up with not just with not without fear, you know, to stand up with, with, yeah. you know, a real, a real sense in their own in their own head that we are humans and we deserve to be treated like human beings, you know. And this is the thing that actually, uh, I thought that the, that the whole the whole approach to this was really good on that term that it was saying, look, we're human beings and we refu- we refuse to uh, just bow down. Oh, wow, we really appreciate that, man. Yeah, because knowledge is power, man. And you know, the Fountain Theater uh, that that's their brand at the Fountain. The Fountain has been the, is the little is the little theater that could on social issues for decades, mm-hmm. and a, a lot of their stuff has been taken nationwide. We're hoping this one is also, you know, follows that track, and, and we go we go wide with this because you're right. It's a you know these are the stories that have to be told. You know the fact that nobody knows what really mm-hmm. goes on inside. In you know we have the top. We saw those kids in the cages. We saw how terrible it was when, when, when the Trump administration took over. But even that, this, this all started in the Clinton administration. Mm-hmm. This has been going on administration after administration after administration, getting worse and worse um, as, the, as the decades and as the administrations go by. And so being able to bring this out and put this out on a national stage would be something. Everybody, to be able to put this out on a national stage would really be something. All right, I want to thank both of you very much for joining us today, and uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to go back and see you anyway. So <laughs> I really... Yeah, we, we don't mind you coming twice, Michael. Okay, that's it. Then I'm on. All right. <laughs> All right, well, thanks a lot, and really appreciate thanks talking so with you. Take care now. All right, you're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and we've just been talking with two folks, two, the actors, uh, Will Dixon and Liana Aruz of the play Detained. We're going to take a quick break and be right back, so stay tuned. If one woman hurts, if one woman cries, if one man bleeds, rise. Up, get up, dance up, get up, sing up, get up, change everything. Up, get up, dance up, get up, sing up, get up, change everything. Silence must stop. Violence must end. Broken body and spirit will rise again. Strength All right, now you tell me that you weren't sitting there saying, damn, I just want that stuff to play harder and louder and longer. All right, just hit it up a little bit more. All right. All right, that's Rise by Betty, all right? 
So go out and get it. And uh, really, I'm telling you, it's a, it's a hell of a thing, all right? All right, now, uh, March 4th, an important forum was held at Revolution Books in New York City. It was, a, it was around the war in Ukraine and what's happening. And everybody needs to be paying fierce attention to that and thinking about what's happening with that and figuring out what the hell we need to do, all right? Because we cannot just sit back and allow this stuff to just keep on, just keep on rolling into, no, into nothing but horror. Okay, so March 4th, an important forum was held at Revolution Books in New York City. It was on the war in Ukraine. What's happening? Why is it happening? Where did the interests of, of humanity lie? And what does it have to do with the revolution that humanity so urgently needs? So right now, we're going to hear uh, the main talk with Raymond Lada, a political economist who writes for, the, uh, for Revcom.us, uh, the website there, Revcom.us. And he's also often on, on this show, so, uh, and, and people know the power of what he's bringing. All right, so let's dig into that now. Andy has spoken about the warmongering and the hypocritical self-righteous condemnation of the Russian invasion by the U.S. imperialists and the U.S. media. It must be said and repeated, no other imperialist power holds a candle to the U.S. when it comes to unjust invasions, violations of national sovereignty, and regime change. As Andy also emphasized, anyone with heart and conscience should oppose the brutal Russian invasion of Ukraine. But we here in the belly of the beast have a special responsibility to mainly expose and oppose our own imperialist rulers, to expose and oppose their imperialist aims, actions, and objectives. They are, in fact, the greatest exploiters and oppressors of the people of the world. And it must be said and repeated the U.S. imperialists are not acting, as they proclaim, as guardians of democracy against authoritarianism. No, they are pursuing their exploitative and murderous global imperialist interests, doing so in our name, seeking to rally our support for their crimes and for their empire. Now, this brings me to the heart of my talk. I want to pull the lens back and address how it is that Ukraine is not a battleground for democracy, but a conflict zone of imperialist rivalry between Russian imperialism and U.S. and Western imperialism. I want to talk about the global developments and dynamics that are shaping this conflict. But before getting into this, let me point out that the history of Ukraine and Russia is both very unfamiliar to most of us, and what we do know is distorted through a certain pro-US imperialist lens. Now that history would take more time than I have tonight to unravel, but we do have available a packet here and people watching online can go to revcom.us to get the basics of this. First, some background. Ukraine is a country of some 44 million people with a rich history. 
It is the second largest country in Europe. Ukraine shares a vast, about 1,700-mile land and sea border with Russia. Ukraine also borders Poland, Hungary, Romania, among other countries. On the south of Ukraine is the Black Sea. This region is important uh, for trade for Ukraine, Turkey, and especially Russia. For Russia as an imperialist power, this region uh, is important economically for shipping oil and natural gas, as well as grain, and thereby gaining leverage over countries that rely on these imported materials. The Black Sea region is also critical for projecting Russian military power to Europe, Central Asia, and the Middle East. Russia also has a major naval military base in a Black Sea port in Crimea, a region that used to be part of Ukraine, but which Russia seized in 2014. As for U.S. imperialism, since the collapse of the former Soviet Union in 1990-91, the U.S. has drawn other Black Sea countries like Romania and Bulgaria into the military alliance in Europe that the U.S. heads up that is called NATO. And Ukraine, with its large border with Russia, has become closely entwined with the U.S. America has provided Ukraine with great amounts of economic and military aid since the early 2000s. And the U.S. had a big hand in an uprising that took place in Ukraine in 2014 that have put a government in power that is friendly to the U.S. and aiming to become part of NATO, that military alliance based in Europe that I mentioned. For sheer imperialist hypocrisy, imagine how the U.S. imperialists would react if Russia and China had a military alliance with large parts of South America and Central America, and if Russia brought Mexico into such a close alliance. The Russians, for their part, have, and especially since 2014, backed sections of Ukraine to break away and ally or merge with Russia. In 2016-17, U.S. NATO battle groups were deployed to Poland and other Baltic states like Latvia that border Russia and are really very close to Russia's second largest city, St. Petersburg. Meanwhile, Ukraine has been moving closer to the U.S. and trumpeting its determination to join NATO, the U.S.-led military alliance. This is the immediate backdrop to Russia's invasion in late February. The Russian invasion is not about denazifying Ukraine, as Vladimir Putin proclaims. This invasion is designed to bolster Russia's rivalry with the US, to command more influence and create a rival pole of power focused in Europe, Central Asia, and the Middle East. For its part, the US is arming Ukraine 
in order to weaken Russia and prevent Russia from consolidating further imperialist strength and posing greater imperialist challenges to the current world order that the U.S. dominates and of which the U.S., U.S. imperialism, is the main beneficiary. So this is a first cut into why it is the case that Ukraine is a conflict zone between rival imperialist powers and their clashing strategic aims. But we have to pull the lens back further to take in the larger picture. The world imperialist system and the world imperialist economy have undergone big shifts in the last 30 years. And the world imperialist order is undergoing further shifts at major changes today. The U.S. is still the strongest imperialist power, economically and militarily. It commands a vast, integrated network of global exploitation. The dollar plays a central and privileged role in the world economy. Oil, for instance, is denominated in dollars. And institutions like the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, which the US dominates, use loans and finance to twist the economic development of countries of the global south to serve the interests of US imperialist and Western imperialist investment. The U.S. spends astronomically more on weapons than any other country in the world. The U.S. has over 700 overseas military bases in more than 70 countries. But the U.S.'s economic strength is declining relative to capitalist imperialist China, which is a rising power. And China is mounting a growing and all-round imperialist challenge to U.S. imperialism, economically, financially, and militarily. Uh, for instance, um, China is investing very heavily in raw materials extraction in Africa. At the same time, the U.S. imperialists are facing Russia as another competitor, which has grown more powerful under Vladimir Putin since the early 2000s. Each of these imperialists has its particular strengths and advantages. Each has a certain freedom to act, but each also faces necessity, the need to act and react to defend and extend empire. Putin cannot allow the US and Western Europe to surround Russia with hostile alliances and advanced weapons. The US is facing the prospect not only of a newly assertive Russian imperialism, but the potential of Russia and China joining together in an alliance against US imperialism. Putin's invasion of Ukraine is a move to bring Ukraine back into the Russian imperialist bloc. This is to strengthen Russia's ability to compete with and challenge the U.S., especially in the area of Europe and Asia. The U.S., on the other hand, 
is arming the Ukrainians to weaken Russia and hoping to bog Russia down. The U.S. is using this war to tighten its leadership over West European imperialist countries. The U.S. is imposing sanctions on Russia. You hear that term, sanctions. Sanctions refer to economic measures to deny your adversary access to markets, to finance, and to financial holdings that may be held in banks around the world. The U.S. is using sanctions to strangle the Russian ruling class and the Russian economy. This is a dangerous situation. This conflict could rapidly escalate and spiral into an all-out confrontation between the U.S. and Russia. And here is a sobering fact that Andy mentioned that I'm just going to elaborate on. The U.S. and Russia own and command 90% of the world's nuclear warheads. That's some 8,000 nuclear weapons. 2,000 of these weapons are on high operational alert. Both of these powers deploy these weapons in reach of battle zones of this war and its possible spread. This is an existential threat to humanity. Now, we can get more into this in the discussion, but there are three things to keep in mind. This conflict in Ukraine is not about Russian autocracy versus American democracy. It is about rivalry between imperial powers. Second, as Bob Avakian has written recently, and as Andy had cited, none of these powers represent the interest of humanity. We must oppose all of them as the monsters and modern-day slave masters that they are. But we in the U.S. must give particular emphasis to opposing our own imperialists who have brought incalculable suffering to the people of the world, carried out endless wars of empire, and caused more damage to the environment than any other country on the planet. Third, this war is not happening at any time. As Baba Vikian has analyzed, humanity stands at a crossroads. When the possibilities exist for something terrible or something truly emancipatory. He has shown how this is one of those rare times when revolution in the United States, in the belly of the beast, could actually be possible. And that is what we must be preparing for. In closing, I want to take a few minutes to talk about an important lesson and experience of history that widens our lens of understanding. One of the ways that the US imperialists and their media systematically misinform people is when they talk about an unbroken thread of Russian tyranny. The Russian emperor czars of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, Lenin and Stalin, the rulers of the Soviet Union in the 1970s and 1980s, and Putin. But this idea of an unbroken thread of tyranny 
erases the reality that there was an era in Russian history and Russian society that was truly liberatory. This was the time of genuine socialist revolution in Russia from 1917 until the early 1950s, but especially the 1920s and early 1930s. The Soviet revolution inspired the oppressed and exploited throughout the world. The earth-shaking liberatory revolution of October 1917 in Russia, led by the communist leader V.I. Lenin, created the world's first socialist society. It also created the first multinational state based on equality of nations, cultures, and languages. Russia before the revolution was often described as the prison house of nations because of the savage oppression uh, that was meted out by the Russian empire to minority nationalities. I might just say that Russia was called the prison house of nations. The United States is a nation of prison houses. The policy adopted and insisted on by Lenin was self-determination for the formerly oppressed nations and minorities who joined together in the union of Soviet socialist republics. That was why USSR, meaning that the unity of the new socialist state had to be voluntary. Vladimir Putin, by the way, condemns Lenin for this. The socialist revolution of 1917 involved the people of Ukraine in this spirit of self-determination that was advocated by Lenin, in this revolutionary spirit to create a new world. That was what the October Revolution heralded. The people of the Ukraine were involved in this great revolution and so too in the Civil War that followed in the years 1918-21. By 1922, the new Soviet state became a union of Soviet Socialist Republics. The short name for that is the Soviet Union. And Ukraine was one of the 12 founding republics of this union, which also included a great number of self-governing autonomous territories of formerly oppressed nationalities. The Soviet Union under Lenin's leadership and later Joseph Stalin's instituted bold and radical measures to overcome inequality and discrimination. Education was carried out in native languages. Efforts were made to bring forward indigenous local leadership in the formerly oppressed nations. And the Soviet state financed the mass production of books, journals, newspapers, films, operas, folk ensembles, and more in non-Russian languages. At the same time, the Soviet state launched um, education and ideological struggle against what was called Great Russian Chauvinism. That is the belief in the superiority of the Russian people and their right to dominate and oppress other nationalities like white supremacy in the United States. So all of this has been erased and I can get into that and I can also discuss why and how some of these policies got reversed in the 1930s and 1940s, 
how that fit into the actual weakening of socialism in the Soviet Union and the restoration of capitalism in the mid-1950s. And what Bob Avakian has summed up about that period in the Q&A. And people watching can go to the Set the Record Straight project, thisiscommunism.org, and they can go to revcom.us to do a much deeper dive into this history. So with that, I'll end my talk, and I want to bring Andy Z back to the platform, and I thank you for coming out, and we can get into this more deeply in the discussion that follows. All right, that was Raymond Lotta speaking at a Revolution Books New York forum on war in Ukraine. You can find a video of this whole program at the YouTube channel, The Revcoms. We're going to take a quick musical break and be right back, so stay tuned. We're going to hear some of the voices from the New York rally for Rise Up for Abortion Rights that was held on March 8th, International Women's Day. This first part includes the co-MC Michelle Chai, two of the co-initiators of Rise Up for Abortion Rights, Merle Hoffman of the Choices Women's Medical Center, and Lori Sokol of Women's E-News. They are followed by actress Kathy Nijimi, abortion provider Dr. Bruce Price, Bela, a high school student, the group Betty, and activist Araceli Herrera speaking in Spanish and English. Welcome, happy International Women's Day! We're here today with our sisters and brothers in Los Angeles, in Atlanta, in Boston, Chicago, Cleveland, DC, Detroit, Honolulu, San Francisco, and Seattle, to say we refuse to let the US Supreme Court deny women's humanity and decimate their rights. Abortion on demand and without apology. Happy International Women's Day. But how many of you know that International Women's Day was born in struggle? In 1908, you had thousands of women marching down the garment district, garment workers asking, demanding for better working conditions, for higher pay, and the right to vote, the right to vote. So I do not see this as purely a day to celebrate. What I see this as a day for commitment and recommitment to what I consider the transcendent cause of the women's movement. Because the right to decide when and whether or not to be a mother is the front line and the bottom line of women's freedom and liberation. Because the desire to control wombs and birth giving is the very definition of patriarchy, 
power over women's bodies has always come first. The morning after Hitler was elected, for instance, his very first act was to padlock the family planning clinics and declare abortion to be a crime against the state. I also wanted to quickly say it's no coincidence I'm reading this statement from her because I actually, my path as a feminist writer now running a global women's news organization is because of Gloria and, and her writing and the magazine that she started, Ms. Magazine, and of course has saved so many lives through her words. But although for the last few decades I have been writing about feminism, it's only been very recently, probably no more than a month or two ago, that I said, if I'm really going to follow people, women like her, I need to be out there in the streets, not just writing behind a computer and putting it out there. There is nothing like being out in the streets, stepping up and standing up. We're no longer going to wait for permission to challenge oppressive religious beliefs and misogyny and horrific notions of controlling the very fabric of women's destinies. All right, so I want to give a quick shout out. Right here, we got a contingent from Harlem for abortion on demand and without apology. So I remember George Tiller as my older next door neighbor growing up in Wichita, Kansas. And I remember the rage I felt when I heard that he was assassinated on May the 31st, 2009. In 2016, inspired by George's life, I joined the Board of Directors of Trust Women. If he were alive today, I believe that in body and spirit, he would join us in the streets, these streets, to resist and defeat the current assault on women, to demonstrate in word and deed that every woman and every girl should have a future as full and equal human beings, and that indeed forced motherhood is female enslavement. And I'm angry. We are done being polite. We are done feeling hopeless and fearing that our right to abortion could be taken away at any moment. So let's all keep up this fight because it's going to be a long one, but it's important. Abortion on demand and without apology. If one woman hurts, if one woman cries, if one man bleeds,
All right, now let's hear part two of the voices we've got today. Sansara Taylor, a writer for Revcom.us and co-initiator of Rise Up for Abortion Rights. Reverend Jackie Lewis, senior minister of the Collegiate Church of New York, and the playwright V, formerly known as Eve Ensler. It is possible to stop this fascist assault on women. It is possible. But it is not possible by constricting ourselves to choosing between candidates where one half of them are fascist lunatics who sometimes refer to women as host bodies and the other half are led by a president, Biden, who will not even say the word abortion. We cannot win by accepting defeat in advance. And we have to be honest, this is what way too much of the so-called leaders of the so-called women's movement have done already. They have accepted that Roe v. Wade will fall and abortion rights will be gone. No, this has to stop. Women are not incubators. Women are not property of the state. Women are full human beings. And we have to go out today and going forward, all of us here, and wake up and organize and mobilize the one force that is powerful enough to stop this fascist assault. And that is the masses of people rising up in their millions, relentlessly again and again, filling the streets with our fury, shutting down the campuses and walking out, shutting down the freeways, taking over everywhere again and again and making clear to the fascists on the court and everywhere else that if they try to take this right away, if they try to slam women backwards, their society will be prevented from functioning at all. And if we want an example of what can be accomplished by people who refuse to accept the unacceptable and who dare to go out and challenge others, look at the women of Colombia. Look at the women of Argentina. Look at the women in Mexico. This is why we wear this green bandana. If you do not know, those are deeply Catholic countries, very repressive states, very patriarchal. Places where abortion has been criminalized for years, women sent to prison for miscarriages. But the women down there went in the streets, not once, but again and again, relentlessly. Sometimes a million strong, and they waved this green bandana, and they kept coming back, and they tore down those laws, and they decriminalized abortion. Through their struggle, they made what everybody thought was impossible, possible. And we, as we go out, we will find others who are like us. And as we do, we're going to open up the big questions about what kind of society do we live in that has put these fascist lunatics in power? Where does this desire to control women come from? And what will it take to end it once and for all? And for my part, as a follower of the revolutionary leader, Baba Bakian, who is also the architect of the new communism. I'm going to be fighting for what I understand to be true, which is that all this patriarchy, all this oppression, all these centuries of patriarchal chains are rooted in this system, along with all the other forms of oppression, of capitalism and imperialism. 
and it cannot be ended without bringing that system down, without overthrowing it once and for all in an actual revolution. But until we do that, all this oppression will regenerate, just like the villain in one of those misogynist slasher movies that you think is dead at the end, and he comes back, and he comes back. We have to bring this system down. But I also want to say a great strength of this movement is our diversity of views. We don't all agree. We come from different perspectives, but we stand shoulder to shoulder and insisted that women control their own bodies and lives. And after today, we're going to organize to bring more people out. April 8th, we're going to spread this green bandana into the workplaces, hospitals, schools, everywhere. It'll be a day of green. And April 9th, April 9th, we are coming back to this park thousands strong. And across this country, thousands strong. And from there, we are doubling down and doing it again and again until we flood the streets and bring this society to a halt. Because they must not, they must not be allowed to shatter the lives of women and slam history backwards. I want to give a big shout out to our hermanas and compañeras from Dominican Women Development Center who showed up. I'm here standing for Gladys, who was pregnant with four other children working in a blue-collar family, black family, with not enough money to feed those four mouths and who brought with her church shame and spouse shame, but still needed to have an abortion, but had to go to that back alley place to have one. I'm here standing for Gladys. How about you? Are you standing for Gladys? If you can make a baby, you get to choose not to have a baby. If you can make a baby, you get to choose not to have a baby. I am sick of fascism and hate. I am sick of indiscriminate bombs falling. I am sick of guns. I am sick from the destruction of our precious earth, from pillaging and raping and spilling and ravaging and extracting of our forests and seas and land. I am sick of patriarchy. No one, no man, no church, no state has the right to tell me, to tell you what we can and cannot do with our body. They cannot legislate what goes on in it. They cannot enter it without consent or meddle with it or determine what it needs. This is my womb. This is my vagina. This is my choice. Everyone does not want or need to be a mother. That dictum was created by patriarchs to keep women in their place, to mechanize childbirth, to use it as a form of oppression and suppression rather than a choice of love. The way we win is in the power of our love, in our unity, in our solidarity, in our sisterhood, our brotherhood, our bravery, our determination, and in our numbers. So say it with me. Abortion on demand. Without apology. Abortion on demand. Without apology. Make it be so. Without apology. Abortion on demand. Without apology. Abortion.
All right, you've been hearing voices from the March 8th rally in New York City, and as I said at the beginning of the show, we will be bringing more of the sounds of March 8th in, in the coming weeks. And this is just the beginning. There will be mass meetings nationwide the weekend of March 19th to the 20th. April 7th and to the 8th will be Wear Green Day in preparation for Saturday, April 9th nationwide protests. So stay tuned to Rise Up, number four, abortionrights.org, or follow them on social media. And that brings us to the end of another show. I'd like to thank the assistant producer, Henry Carson, and engineer Gary Baca, and all of you. Talk to you again next week. One 